Like any mafia boss, the president didn't need to say, that's a nice country you have, it'd be a shame if something happened to it, because that was clear from the conversation. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, in New Orleans, Louisiana, on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950 KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com, your trusty guest host, for a while now anyway. Uh, Before we get into politics and the craziness that surrounds us, let me give you an update on Brad. As you probably know by now, he's been gone for a couple of weeks because his father suffered a serious stroke. Well, Brad's father passed away. And now Brad is with his family planning a funeral. So Brad and Desi will be back as soon as they can be. In the meantime, thank you for bearing with me. So what a time for Brad to be gone, right? Because everything is hitting the proverbial fan. Shortly before 9 o'clock Thursday morning, the whistleblower complaint was released to the public. It is very well written and quite comprehensive. And it's a bombshell. We'll get to that shortly. I'll share some of it with you. But first, let me bring you up to speed on what's been happening since we last spoke. The political ground quaked on Wednesday when the White House released a summary of Donald Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. Proving his lack of understanding about what being president actually means, Trump expressed disbelief that he could be impeached over this. And the Democrats did this hoax during the United Nations week. It was perfect because this way it takes away from these tremendous achievements that we're taking care of doing, uh, that we're involved in, in New York City at the United Nations. So that was all planned, like everything else. It was all planned. And the witch hunt continues. But they're getting hit hard on this witch hunt because when they look at the information, it's a joke. Impeachment for that? When you have a wonderful meeting or you have a wonderful phone conversation? I think you should ask. We actually, you know, that was the second conversation. I think you should ask for the first conversation also. I can't believe they haven't. Although I heard there's a, there's a rumor out they want the first conversation. It was beautiful. It was just a perfect conversation. But I think you should do that. I think you should do. And I think you should ask for... VP Pence's conversation because he had a couple of conversations also. I could save you a lot of time. They're all perfect. Thursday's Washington Post front page screams Trump offered justices aid for a probe of Biden and in a scathing editorial calls the phone conversation a, quote, devastating indictment of the U.S. president. Donald Trump held a press conference at the U.N. Wednesday afternoon in which he appeared drawn, dejected and defeated. That didn't stop him from rambling as usual. 
While Trump was speaking, members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees were in a skiff reading the whistleblower complaint. As they emerged, each one seemed more shaken by what they read than the last. Chuck Schumer said he was, quote, even more worried after reading the document. Eric Swalwell told Wolf Blitzer it is a, quote, five-alarm concern, adding, it's actually shocking that so many people saw this conduct and didn't come forward. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff emerged from the skiff and went right to the microphones. There was only one message that that president of Ukraine got from that call, and that was, this is what I need I know what you need. Like any mafia boss, the president didn't need to say, that's a nice country you have. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, because that was clear from the conversation. There is no quid pro quo necessary to betray your country or your oath of office, uh, even though many read this as a quid pro quo. Uh, I'm not concerned whether it is a quid pro quo or not. Ukraine understood what this president wanted. He made it abundantly clear. He made it redundantly clear. He had his emissaries making it clear. And Ukraine knew what it needed to do if it wanted to get military assistance. And that is help the president of the United States violate his oath of office. And late Wednesday afternoon came word that the whistleblower complaint had been declassified. And sure enough, the link at which to read it became available Thursday morning, a few minutes before 9 at which time Joseph McGuire, the acting director of national intelligence, was on Capitol Hill to testify in an open session before the House Intelligence Committee. The the letter, the actual whistleblower complaint, was released to the public this morning. As I said, it's nine pages long, and it reads, Dear Chairman Burr and Chairman Schiff, I am reporting an urgent concern in accordance with procedures outlined in 50 U.S.C., 3033K5A, this letter is unclassified when separated from the attachment. In the course of my official duties, this whistleblower writes, I have received information from multiple U.S. government officials that the President of the United States is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. This interference includes, among other things, pressuring a foreign country to investigate one of the president's main domestic political rivals. Hello? The president's personal lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, is a central figure in this effort. Attorney General Barr appears to be involved as well. I'm going to pause for a second because that there is what's known as a bombshell. The uh, complaint continues. Over the past four months, more than half a dozen U.S. officials have informed me of various facts related to this effort. The information provided herein was relayed to me in the course of official interagency business. It is routine for U.S. officials with responsibility for a particular regional or functional portfolio to share such such information with one another in order to inform policymaking and analysis. I was not a direct witness to most of the events described. However, I found my colleagues' accounts of these events to be credible because in almost all cases, multiple officials recounted fact patterns that were consistent with one another. In addition, a variety of information consistent with these private accounts has been reported publicly. I'm deeply concerned that the actions described below constitute a, quote, serious or flagrant problem, abuse, or violation of law or executive order that, quote, does not include differences of opinions concerning public policy matters. Consistent with the definition of an urgent concern, in the the code that was referenced before, I am therefore fulfilling my duty to report this information through proper legal channels to the relevant authorities. Not too shabby. Continues, I am also concerned that these actions pose risks to U.S. national security and undermine the U.S. government's efforts to deter and counter foreign interference in U.S. elections. To the best of my knowledge, the entirety of this statement is unclassified when separated from the classified enclosure. I have endeavored to apply the classification standards 
outlined in Executive Order 13526 and to separate out information that I know or have reason to believe is classified for national security purposes. And then it goes on about classification and all that. Okay, then the whistleblower moves on to number one, the July 25th presidential phone call. And he writes, early in the morning of 25 July, the president spoke by telephone with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. I do not know which side initiated the call. This was the first publicly acknowledged call between the two leaders since a brief congratulatory call after Mr. Zelensky won the presidency on April 21st. Multiple White House officials with direct knowledge of the call informed me that after an initial exchange of pleasantries, the president used the remainder of the call to advance his personal interests. Namely, he sought to pressure the Ukrainian leader to take actions to help the president's 2020 re-election bid. This is stunning. According to uh, the White House officials who had direct knowledge of the call, the president pressured Mr. Zelensky to, inter alia, uh, first bullet point, initiate or continue an investigation into the activities of former Vice President Joseph Biden and his son Hunter Biden. Two, assist in purportedly uncovering the allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election originated in Ukraine with a specific request that the Ukrainian leader locate and turn over servers used by the Democratic National Committee and examined by the U.S. cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, which initially reported that Russian hackers had penetrated the DNC's networks in 2016 and... Meet or speak with two people the president named explicitly has his personal envoys on these matters, Mr. Giuliani and Attorney General Barr, to whom the president referred multiple times in tandem. Uh, then he continues, the president also praised Ukraine's prosecutor general, Mr. Yuri Lutsenko, and suggested that Mr. Zelensky might want to keep him in his position. Note, Starting in March 2019, Mr. Lutsenko made a series of public allegations, many of which he later walked back, about the Biden family's activities in Ukraine, Ukrainian officials' purported involvement in the 2016 U.S. elections, and the activities of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. And then it refers you to Part 4 for additional context. But the, the complaint continues. The White House officials who told me this information were deeply disturbed by what had transpired in the phone call. They told me there was already a, quote, discussion ongoing with White House lawyers about how to treat the call because of the likelihood in the officials retelling that they had witnessed the president abuse his office for personal gain. The Ukrainian side was the first to publicly acknowledge the phone call. On the evening of 25 July, a readout was posted on the website of the Ukrainian president that contained the following line, translation from the original Russian language readout, quote, Donald Trump expressed his conviction that the new Ukrainian government will be able to quickly improve Ukraine's image and complete the investigation of corruption cases that have held back cooperation between Ukraine and the United States. Huh. Aside from the above-mentioned cases purportedly dealing with the Biden family in the 2016 U.S. election, I was told by White House officials that no other cases were discussed. Based on my understanding, there were approximately a dozen White House officials who listened in on the call, a mixture of policy officials and duty officers in the White House Situation Room, as is customary. The officials I spoke with told me that participation in the call had not been restricted in advance because everyone expected it would be a routine call with a foreign leader. I do not know whether anyone was physically present with the president during the call. And then there's a couple more bullet points here. One, in addition to White House personnel, I was told that a State Department official, Mr. T. Ulrich Breckenbull, also listened in on the call. All right. I was not the only non-White House official to receive a readout of the call. Based on my understanding, multiple State Department and intelligence community officials were also briefed on the contents of the call as outlined above. Then it goes on to Section 2. I mean, this is really, it is comprehensive. It's so thoroughly well-written and explains it all. So Section 2 is headlined, Efforts to Restrict Access 
to records related to the call. This we hadn't heard of before, but this opens a whole nother can of worms, as they say. He writes, in the days following the phone call, I learned from multiple U.S. officials that senior White House officials had intervened to, quote, lock down all records of the phone call, especially the official word-for-word transcript of the call that was produced, as is customary, by the White House Situation Room. This set of actions underscored to me that White House officials understood the gravity of what had happened in the call. White House officials told me they were, quote, directed by White House lawyers to remove the electronic transcript from the computer system in which transcripts are typically stored for coordination, finalization, and distribution to cabinet-level officials. Instead, the transcript was loaded into a separate electronic system that is otherwise used to store and handle classified information of an especially sensitive nature. Ooh. One White House official described this act as an abuse of this electronic system because the call did not contain anything remotely sensitive from a national security perspective. I do not know whether similar measures were taken to restrict access to other records of the call, such as contemporaneous handwritten notes by those who listened in. And then he goes on to Section 3, ongoing concerns. And it gets even worse. I mean, just when you think that, okay, this is stunning. This is totally impeachable. I mean, it's laying it out here. No wonder that when we saw the members of the uh, uh, House and Senate intelligence committees who had access to read the report last night, when they came back, they were all shell-shocked. They all, to a person, said, it's bad. Okay, so section three, ongoing concerns. On 26 July, a day after the call, U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations Kurt Volker visited Kiev and met with President Zelensky and a variety of Ukrainian political figures. Ambassador Volker was accompanied in his meetings by the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sunland. Based on multiple readouts of these meetings recounted to me by various U.S. officials, Ambassadors Volker and Sumland reportedly provided advice to the Ukrainian leadership about how to, quote, navigate the demands of the pres- that the president had made of Ukraine's new president. He writes, I also learned from multiple officials, U.S. officials, that on or about August 2nd, Mr. Giuliani reportedly traveled to Madrid to meet with one of President Zelensky's advisors, Andrei Yermak. The U.S. officials characterized this meeting, which was not reported publicly at the time, as a, quote, direct follow-up to the president's call with Mr. Zelensky about the, quote, cases they had discussed. Separately, multiple U.S. officials told me that Mr. Giuliani had reportedly privately reached out to a variety of other Zelensky advisors, including his chief of staff and acting chairman of Security Service of Ukraine, He continues, I do not know whether those officials met or spoke with Mr. Giuliani, but I was told separately by multiple U.S. officials that Mr. Yermak and Mr. Bakanov intended to travel to Washington in mid-August. And then on August 9th, the president told reporters, I think President Zelensky is going to make a deal with President Putin and he will be invited to the White House. And we look forward to seeing him. He's already been invited to the White House and he wants to come and I think he will. He's a very reasonable guy. He wants to see peace in Ukraine and I think he will be coming very soon, actually. And it goes on. All right. It goes on for a few more pages and I won't keep reading it. I will post the link on my blog so you can finish reading it for yourself. But as you can tell, it is um, damning is is the way I can report it. Damning. Now, following the release of that, Donald Trump was speaking at a breakfast, a private breakfast in New York City. It was an event intended to honor the United States mission. And let me read to you from the New York Times. Speaking at a private breakfast in New York, Trump described reporters as, quote, scum and raged at the Democrats' new impeachment proceedings, which were spurred by the whistleblower's complaint, alleging that Trump tried to strong-arm Ukraine's leader to interfere in the 2020 election. Quote, he said, I want to know who's the person. Who's the person who gave the whistleblower the information? Because that's close to a spy. But basically, that person never saw the report, never saw the call, 
when he never saw the cold, heard something and decided that he or she, whoever the hell it is, sort of like almost a spy. I want to know who's the person that gave the whistleblower? Who's the person that gave the whistleblower the information? Because that's close to a spy. You know what we used to do in the old days when we were smart, right? The spies and treason. We used to handle it a little differently than we do now. Did Donald Trump, in this breakfast this morning, threaten the whistleblower to treat him as we treat spies who are guilty of treason? You know how they, what they, how they used to handle it a little differently? They killed them. Donald Trump threatened to execute the whistleblower. It just gets more and more insane. Maggie Haberman at the New York Times wrote, quote, The remark stunned people in the audience, according to a person briefed on what took place, who had notes of what the president said. Mr. Trump made the statement about several minutes into his remarks before the group of about 50 people at the event intended to honor the United States mission. At the outset, he condemned the former vice president, Joe Biden's role in Ukraine at a time when his son, Hunter Biden, was on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. (laughs) And if that's not enough, the New York Times also started reporting on the whistleblower. We don't have a name, but we kind of know who it is. All right, here's what the New York Times reported just an hour or so ago. The whistleblower who revealed that President Trump sought foreign help for his reelection and that the White House sought to cover it up is a CIA officer who was detailed to work at the White House at one point, this according to three people familiar with his identity. So it is a man. The man has since returned to the CIA, the people said. Little else is known about him, according to the New York Times. His complaint, made public Thursday, suggested he was an analyst by training and made clear he was steeped in details of American foreign policy toward Europe, demonstrating a sophisticated understanding of Ukrainian politics and at least some knowledge of the law. The whistleblower's expertise will likely add to lawmakers' confidence about the merits of his complaint and tamp down allegations that he might have misunderstood what he learned about Mr. Trump. He did not listen directly to that July call between Trump and President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine that is at the center of the political firestorm. But there you go. So he was a CIA officer assigned for a while anyway to the White House. And he probably will come forward because he's already said he'll testify. Make no mistake, this man is in danger. His lawyer issued a statement. He said, any decision to report any perceived identifying information of the whistleblower is deeply concerning and reckless as it can place the individual in harm's way. The whistleblower has a right to anonymity. A CIA spokesman declined to comment. A spokesman for the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, who was on the hot seat this morning, said that protecting the whistleblower was his office's highest priority. He said at the hearing that he didn't know the whistleblower's identity. All right. And the Times, of course, defended their decision to print that information about the whistleblower such as it is. And that brings us to what went on this morning. Adam Schiff, I thought, did a great job at the beginning, setting it all up and asking the initial round of questions. I think he he spent too much time at the end trying to get McGuire's personal thoughts on whether or not, I don't know, this was an impeachable offense. I don't care what McGuire thinks. What I'm more concerned about is a question that they couldn't get an answer to, which was, why didn't he follow the law? The rule of law that says the chain of custody of this complaint should have gone from the whistleblower to the intelligence community's inspector general who performed uh, an investigation. That happened. The inspector general found it to be credible and of an urgent nature and by law turned it over to the director of national intelligence, in this case an acting DNI, who was then supposed to immediately turn it over to Congress, and that's where the problem occurred, because he did not. Not only did McGuire not turn it over to Congress, he brought it to the White House. The White House, the subject of the whistleblower's complaint. That's a problem. It's really a problem. And so 
Um, you know, I've got a number of clips pulled where this is addressed, and and um, uh, McGuire wouldn't just simply would not answer the question as to whether or not he ever discussed the whistleblower report with the president. And director, you understand. We're not asking you about your conversations with the president, about national security, about foreign policy, about the National Counterterrorism Center. We just want to know, did you discuss this subject with the president? You could imagine what a profound conflict of interest that would be. Did you discuss this subject, this whistleblower plane, with the president? Did you? You could say, I did not discuss it with him, if that's the answer. That doesn't betray any privilege. And you can say, I did discuss it with him, but I'm not going to get into the content of those conversations. Right. That question you can answer. Yes, he can, but he Chairman won't. Chairman Schiff, once again, you know, my conversation, no matter what the subject is with the President of the United States, is privileged conversation no. between the Director of National Intelligence and the President. Unbelievable. The, he wouldn't answer the question as to why he brought the, the report to the White House, the subject of the complaint. It's beyond frustrating. Time for a deep breath. It went on. It went on for hours. But you get the idea. So let's turn things around a little bit. When we come back, we'll look at what's possible. How's that for a tease? I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad Friedman on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Whistle while you wait. Come on, get smart and tune up and start to whistle while you wait. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi. We've been focused so much on the negative. It's hard not to, considering the orange menace occupying the Oval Office and the very fast-moving news concerning the whistleblower and impeachment. But we're going to move into the realm of what's possible. Let's not forget, we're in the midst of a very important Democratic Party primary. Now, I love primary season because it's when you reach for the sky. You go for the best candidate possible, or you should, well, the American Prospect is in on this, too. This week, they launched a new section of the magazine at prospect.org called The Day One Agenda. David Dayen is now executive editor of The Prospect, and he and his staff identified 30 things the new president could do on day one using laws already on the books that give a president great discretionary power for constructive change without abusing executive authority. Sounds good, right? Let's get to it. Joining us on the line is David Dayan. He is the executive editor of The American Prospect, in addition to the author of uh, an amazing book, Chain of Title, and I understand you have a new one coming out uh, in the not-too-distant yeah, future. Yeah, next year, Monopolized. Monopolized. the age of corporate power. Ooh, okay. Well, I can't wait. We'll look forward to that. Um, you've been now the executive editor of The American Prospect for a few months. How's it feeling? Feeling good, uh, especially with uh, this this new series that was really uh, something I I wanted to do and and talked about when I interviewed uh, at the prospect. Um, so you know, having the opportunity to uh, really implant my vision uh, on a, a new uh, outlet, something that's been around for thirty years, but that we're sort of updating and bringing into the twenty first century. Uh, is is really is really uh, you know rewarding, and we have a brand new website. I actually, noticed uh, very started nice this week. Uh huh. Uh, in conjunction with the launch of your new eleven part series, the Day One Agenda, so people can access the website at prospect.org. It is new and improved. It looks great. And again, you um, just this week uh, launched the day one agenda. So as you said, you, you wrote up an introductory post saying that when you interviewed for the job running the, the American Prospect, this is one of the ideas you had. And basically, it's a, you, you identified 30 
meaningful, as you call them, executive actions that the new incoming president could take on, on day one, as the name implies. Uh, and you have a bunch of essays rolling out, I guess, throughout the course of the series to go into detail on them? Uh, yeah, um, that, that's, that's basically it, as you said. Um, so, you know, we uh, obviously... They're all in one place in, in the magazine uh, in the fall issue. But, uh, yeah, we've decided to, to just slowly roll them out. Uh, and really, so many issue areas are covered here. Uh, these are things, you know, I, 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 a lot of people replied to me, well, you're just talking about executive orders. And, and that's not uh, what we're talking about here. These are... Uh, already passed laws, existing hmm. laws, that definitionally the president has the capacity to execute and implement. I mean, that's literally what the president is supposed to do, <laughs> is right. take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And uh, it turns out that there are a number of laws that are not really uh, being uh, uh, you know, used to their full potential, I would say. Okay. So let's, let's just start at the, with the first one that we laid out, student debt. Yes. So um, if you uh, are, are the education secretary, you have this authority called Compromise and Settlement Authority. And what that means is on publicly issued student debt, you can... Uh, uh, essentially decide not to collect uh, that, that loan that is owed to the federal government. You, you can, uh, uh, you know, decide that, that uh, you're going to collect a smaller amount or you're going to settle at uh, a smaller number. And you can effectively cancel some or all publicly issued student debt. And, and of course, after 2010, uh, when uh, a, a law that was uh, folded into the Obamacare law came around and eliminated the bank middlemen who had been uh, issuing debt, uh, student loans, and uh, just made it a, a direct loan from the government, about $1.5 trillion of the $1.6 trillion in outstanding student debt uh, is is owned by the federal government. Hmm, so mm -hmm. you're talking about almost all of it right. that can be eliminated uh, uh, through and forgiven through the federal government wow. uh, without passing a new law. I mean, you know, we have we have two uh, individuals with uh, signature uh, laws uh, or proposals for legislation, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, right. uh, on canceling student debt. But you don't need a law. <laughs> you right. can just wow. go ahead and, and implement it. That's, that's pretty amazing. David Dayen is with us. He is the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. Find them at prospect.org, on Twitter at The Prospect. And just this week, they rolled out the beginnings of a new series, an 11-part series called The Day One Agenda, talking about what a new president could do upon entering office. Now, you know, the, the right criticized Obama so much for his use of executive action, executive orders. Um, but and, and this is I'm off the top of my head. I don't have any research to back it up. But it seems like he was nowhere nearly as prolific, if you will, as Trump is in using executive orders. He's just using them left and right to push things through. As you pointed out, you, these 30 actions that you've identified it wouldn't all be executive orders. But is are are we changing the way we look at the power of the executive of the president? I mean, I'd like to. I, I think the way that, that presidential politics are really uh, uh, covered and conducted is, is, is not fitting with what the actual roles and responsibilities of the presidency are. So Congress makes laws and, and the president implements them. But what do we hear in every debate and every you know, media appearance is what laws are you going to pass? Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> Uh, uh, the president's job is to execute the law. Right. 
Not to pass and uh, there are laws that are very executable that are out there. Uh, uh, if if a, a president is determined and willing to, to use the authority granted by Congress. So, uh, you know, uh, we do hear a lot about presidential power. It usually flips back and forth, uh, yep. depending on what party <laughs> is, is in the presidency. Yep. Uh, uh, if, if, if it's, you know, a, a Republican in the White House, Democrats say presidential power is horrible. And if it's a Democrat, they, they say, uh, you know, no problems. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, there is a way to conceive of this where presidential power just means, you know, being creative uh, about the, the authorities that have been granted by Congress. And Congress can always revoke those laws if, if people don't like it. Um, uh, they, can, they can change the law. Right. But uh, as long as the law is what it is, uh, there's no reason for a president not to use it, and 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 that's really what we're we're trying to uh, get across in this in this section. This is not you know unitary executive stuff. Right. This is not this is not you know uh, assuming that something exists in the Constitution that's not really there. This is uh, this 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 is the real you know. Uh, the real deal. This is this is this is what a president is supposed to do, and uh, we we see a lot of opportunities there for right. a pretty robust progressive agenda. Well, you one of the essays uh, actually there are two on the subject. You wrote one of them on the fact that you say both Sanders and Warren promised to delist marijuana through executive action. This is something we've talked about for years. That it's scheduled. It's on the 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 schedules. Right. <clears throat> schedule one narcotic, which is a Absurd. It's classified right. the same as the heroin. Same as, and Yeah, same it, as heroin. Right. And you're saying that they could just reschedule it without having to go through Congress or anything? I mean, for eight years we screamed at Obama to do something. He never did. And it's, That's it's, correct. it would be that simple, huh? That's correct. So the way the Controlled, Controlled Substances Act works, uh, you can uh, change the schedule of, of a, a controlled substance through legislation. Or the attorney general can make uh, a determination uh, based on uh, medical and scientific uh, recommendations given to him by the Food and Drug Administration, the Health and Human Services Secretary, and uh, the DEA. Uh, those, those recommendations have to be granted, but of course, you know, a president appoints the heads of all those agencies, uh, and the attorney general can then make the decision that. They want to reschedule, uh, which would be moving marijuana, in this case, to a lower tier. I believe there are five tiers in the Controlled Substances Act, which uh, might allow for scientific research. Uh, it might allow uh, for uh, the use of it medicinally. Uh, or a president can deschedule marijuana. In other words, take it off the list of controlled substances right. entirely. Good. Uh, and uh, Warren Sanders, uh, in you know, what we did is we sent a questionnaire to all the presidential candidates asking them if they would commit to these 30 actions. And what they ended up uh, saying, uh, Warren and Sanders, when they returned the questionnaire, is that they would do this. They would, mm. they would deschedule marijuana and legalize it effectively at the federal level. Uh, that would leave the states uh, available to uh, decriminalize or, or, or legalize recreationally uh, within their own states. Uh, so that's the sort of big administrative action that's available on marijuana or, or for that matter, on magic mushrooms sure. or, or really well, whatever other drug. You know, there's a whole other issue that goes hand in hand with the declassification or, or, decre or, or legalization of marijuana, however you want to look at it, and that is um, money. Because right now, I live in Florida. We now, thankfully, have medical marijuana. But if you go into a dispensary, you have to pay cash because they, the, the banks are, are afraid, I guess, to work with any cannabis companies because on the federal level, it's still illegal on a Schedule One narcotic. So by them declassifying it, descheduling it, or whatever the correct terminology is, um, they would then open the door to 
allow this whole burgeoning industry, this huge industry now, to um, come out of the shadows and bank legally. Yes. So, I mean, that's that's one of the big things here is that because marijuana is is a Schedule One drug at the federal level, banks uh, are essentially spooked from dealing with uh, legal cannabis businesses within the states. Uh, uh, they there there was a memo that was sent uh, under the Obama era that said uh, you know this wouldn't be a priority in in prosecution uh, going after banks for dealing with marijuana businesses, but uh, that memo I'm not sure if it was revoked or not by Jeff Sessions, but certainly Jeff Sessions, who's a, a hardcore drug warrior. Uh, was not that interested in uh, you know, letting banks off the hook. Oh, and so no. banks just didn't get the, the, the assurances that they needed that they could deal uh, legally and without fear of prosecution with cannabis-related businesses. And this is a multi-billion yes. dollar industry yeah. at this point. <laughs> yes, it is. So, um, and it's all being done in cash. I mean, I've, ta- I've talked to people who say, you know, I pay my taxes by bringing sacks of money to City Hall. Wow. You know? wow. That's how I pay my local taxes. That's insane. Uh, so I, there's a separate legislation called the, the Safe Banking Act, which I believe is going to get a, a vote in the House this month uh, and, and might even pass. But, but you know, that's <laughs> only what? one facet of uh, all of the prohibitions that go along with making marijuana a Schedule One drug, and uh, the next president has the ability administratively to just change that. David Dayen, executive editor of the American Prospect, on the Day One Agenda, a series that's running now at prospect.org. We'll take a very quick time out and come back on the other side with more from David Dayen. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad Friedman on the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. back. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show, filling in for Brad and Desi while they're out dealing with um, family stuff. But you got me for a little while longer. Let's get back to our discussion with David Dayen, the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. Their website is prospect.org. And if you go there and click on the Day One Agenda, it's a series of essays about 30 things that a new president could do on day one, when the White House returns to sanity. Back to David Dayen. David Dayen, you said you sent out um, a list of the 30 actions that you came up with that a new president could enact on day one to the candidates. Did they all answer you? They didn't all answer, but we got, we got a, a decent amount of responses. And what we did is we put a sidebar in each piece in the package uh, kind of giving you an impression of, of where the candidates stand on a particular issue. And, and for those who didn't send it back, we, we scoured their websites, we, we did some research and, and tried to figure out where they were at and whether they had already committed to uh, certain executive action that is in line with, with, with that article. But I'll tell you, we did that for two reasons. I mean, the first reason is we wanted to generate these sidebars, right? We mm-hmm. wanted to, to kind of weigh in and, 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 and figure out where the candidates were on these particular issues. But the second reason we sent that questionnaire was to let the campaigns know that we're aware mm-hmm. that they have this power, that they have this authority uh, if they uh, end up you know, coming, going into office. Uh, that's an important thing. I mean, uh, under, under President Obama, it took years and years of browbeating from activists to, to, for him to finally say, okay, I'll do DACA, right. uh, which was an executive action. 
um, or, or, you know, whatever other actions they took. The Clean Power Plan, for example, uh, which was the uh, environmental plan uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at power plants. So here we're not waiting six years. <laughs> we're going to say we know that you have this, this tremendous authority to get this done on day one. And uh, uh, we're going to hold you to it. <laughs> we're, 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 we're letting you know that we know. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was really an animating force behind wanting to send out that questionnaire. Uh, uh, makes sense. So, so you're just a couple of days into this, and, and so far you've, um, uh, the prospect has posted essays on the overhaul, overhaul the business of Wall Street, Can- mm-hmm. cancel student debt, almost all mm-hmm. of it, make marijuana effectively legal, unleash the existing anti-monopoly arsenal. And that's how far you've gotten as of the time of this taping. Is there right. a list somewhere of all 30, or do we have to wait until the, you get to the end of the series for the whole thing in, in one place? You're just going to have to wait. <laughs> um, we didn't... Uh, I, I mean, I'll give you some, some previews of, as okay. to what the, the additional stuff is, but um, we didn't sort of write the 30 number comes from the questionnaire. So okay. the questionnaire that we sent out had 30 different questions on it gotcha. of different executive actions. We didn't publish that, but you know, they're inherent within all of the, the pieces, some of which have multiple uh, things. Like if you're talking about unleashing the existing anti-monopoly arsenal, that includes ending non-compete clauses where uh, people have to sign this thing where they say they can't, you know, go to a, a competing business uh, to work. Uh, it includes uh, ending what is known as exclusive dealing. Uh, it it ch- uh, changes anti-merger laws. Uh, it uh, would protect farmers uh, and end the prohibition on the right to repair goods that you've bought. Uh, so all of those are in just one uh, of the articles. Mm, okay. uh, so, you know, there are multiple ones in each article, and, and if you add them all up, it comes I to 30, gotcha. I promise. I see. No, I, I have so no doubt. <laughs> in, future, uh, in, in future pieces, we're going to talk about uh, what the next president can do on the environment. We're going to talk about how they can put together a public option for simple banking mm. uh, through the post office, right. through postal banking. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about how the next president can make it easier through one action to uh, for 800,000 workers in the fastest growing job profession in America to join a union. Uh, that would be home health care workers. Hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about, now I'm trying to think of what the other ones that we did were. Oh, uh, prescription drugs is a big yeah. one. Uh, you can... Uh, right now, prescription drugs operate on a patent system, right? We, we give these drug companies these exclusive patents for uh, many years to uh, exclusively sell the drug, and we don't put any restrictions on, on the price that they can charge. Well, uh, there are uh, laws in the books that say if, if a, a prescription drug company is not providing that drug on reasonable terms, and that, that reasonable terms could include price that that restricts access uh the federal government can march in and take away that patent and distribute it to uh generic competitors so thereby lowering the price of prescription drugs so that's a very big one uh, uh, and, and, you know, the other ones you'll, you'll just have to read at prospect.org. <laughs> Absolutely. Prospect.org. Um, there's no uh, provision for somebody coming in day one and just reversing all of the, the uh, law or the, the actions or the policies, the Obama policies that Trump came in and undid. Uh, <laughs> well, there are, I are, mean, are there? you know, uh, that's essentially what Trump did, right? Right. I mean, yeah. He, uh, Not at once. He came yeah. in through executive orders. I mean, those, the executive orders that Trump has engaged in, some of them are, are really not powerful. They're essentially studies right. that he put together that, that sound like they're impactful, but they're really not. Right. So he can uh, say he did something without actually having done it. Right. He yes. takes credit for things. But he many of them do. are, and that's because, you know, Congresses and, uh, uh, you know, just sort of, uh, and some constitutional authority gives a lot of leeway to the presidents on issues, uh, particularly like 
foreign policy, trade, and immigration. And uh, the president has certainly used that in all three of those areas. Uh, and the next president can, can certainly put their stamp on foreign policy, trade, and immigration uh, in, in a big way. We didn't actually uh, uh, do pieces on those because that's more inherent authority than uh, uh, using laws that are already passed. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting is that even this president, who is, you know, autocratic in some ways, has, has, has taken uh, uh, the assumption that he can, you know, do whatever I want. There's this line, I have an Article 2, so I can do whatever I want. Um, uh, even this president has used existing laws to actually get a lot of his policies done. So uh, the uh, a lot of the tariffs are being done under the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. Uh, the farm bailout, the 28 yeah. billion dollars that he's just funneled Ridiculous. to uh, farm interests, uh, a lot of it going to agribusiness mm -hmm. uh, to offset the, the the problems with his own tariffs. Yeah. Uh, that is done through a New Deal program called the Commodity Credit Corporation. Wow. Um, so, uh, even this president has, has, and his staff has figured out ways to take existing laws and bend them to his own preferences. And all I'm saying, uh, all we're saying in this series is that the next president can do so in a progressive direction. And right. that's literally what a president is supposed to do. Absolutely. And, and hopefully, um, the Democrats will learn a lesson from what you're publishing here because, uh, well, just looking at what's going on now, there are many of us who do vote D who are frustrated with the lack of action on the part of Democrats. That does seem to, um, the tide seems to be turning with the news this week, uh, uh, breaking loose about, uh, you know, the, the call to the president yeah. of Ukraine and all this. I mean, I'm looking on Twitter this morning and, and, and everything I'm seeing is the tide has turned. I mean, I finally think that what shifted is it's no lo this is no longer about the actions of a president so much as it is about the credibility and viability of Congress. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. I mean, without uh, a doubt, right, uh, you, you've, you've now s turned from uh, Congress uh, and, and, and the, the House leadership being worried about so-called fringe views from its uh, radical members or something to uh, centrist and center-left Democrats all month long uh, throughout the recess hearing uh, you've abdicated your authority, yes. you've abdicated your responsibilities uh -huh. as a Congress to hold accountable a runaway executive. And so it's it's become now a liability for Nancy Pelosi uh, to to hold this up, and uh, and and you know it it just took one more onto the pile of impeachable offenses for a tipping point to be reached. Uh, because you know I, I I was thinking about maybe I will write this story about it's almost like Trump was Wells Fargo, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he he. He did this. Uh, he contributed to this terrible thing that happened. In the case of Wells Fargo, contributed to this terrible thing that happened uh, around the financial crisis. Wasn't held accountable and learned the lesson that crimes could continue with relative impunity. And then we saw the fake account scandal, and then we saw uh, issues with uh, dummy insurance that was being sold to people, and then we saw. Uh, more forgeries on accounts and things like that. And, and as long as there wasn't really any accountability for it, why would Wells Fargo care uh, uh, whether to, you know, stay within the bounds of the law? And, and that's where Trump was, you know? I mm -hmm. mean, he, in, mm -hmm. and in some ways, he, where he still is, uh, because he knows that, that Republicans in the Senate aren't going to convict him and remove him from office. Right. Uh, he probably wants to. Uh, he, he, in some ways, is, has invited impeachment. It's sort of what are you going to do about it, right? Um, but at this point, the credibility of Congress is on the line. Sure. Uh, they, 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 this is this is a continuation of the elite impunity that we've see, that we've seen uh, since since the financial crisis, 
And uh, if they do nothing about it, then then they've they've essentially dissolved themselves as an institution. Yeah, they've rendered themselves uh, obsolete. So I I think finally uh, we're seeing a recognition of that. And, you know, uh, if if you end up impeaching and and Republicans don't convict, then that's on them. I mean, that's that's, that's something they're going to have to deal with. Right. And And they have to go on record and vote either to stand up for this guy who, uh, you know, we're now seeing did exactly what he, you know, the collusion that he claimed never happened. He went ahead and did it again. Even after, you know, now there's no question that he knows this is not okay. He still went ahead and did it because he thinks he's above everything. Um, so, so if these Republican members of the Senate have to take a vote and say um, he is not guilty of obstruction of justice, you know, uh, ex- extorting from a, a foreign power help on his campaign, I mean, uh, that, that's, right. as you said, that's on them. Well, and, sadly, I think it's going to end up being a procedural vote to not hold a trial. Uh, uh, uh-huh. Because the, 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 there's nothing actually in the Constitution that says the Senate has, has to, to hold a trial yep. immediately yep. after uh, a, an impeachment uh, in the House. Weirdly enough, it is not, wow. it is not firm in the law. Uh, there are Senate rules that suggest that you have to hold a trial, but those rules can be changed in the same way the nuclear option <sighs> took place, and you change Senate rules uh, to, to change the, the filibuster thresholds on Supreme Court justices, for example. So there would be a vote, but it would be a procedural vote to change Senate rules so that a trial would not have to be held. And I could certainly see Mitch McConnell you know, wanting to be a human shield for Donald Trump and not hold Sure. Trial. Right. There would still be a vote, but it would it would it would be a different vote, and it would be you know probably uh, explained away in different ways. Ay, amazing. You know, there's an old <laughs> adage that says something along the lines of "May you live in interesting times." There you go. Uh, we're you go. we're in it. Um, unbelievable, David Dan. I, I always enjoy reading your work. It's great having you at the helm of the prospect. You're doing amazing stuff over there. I encourage people to sign up for your newsletter, which I, I got to tell you, you the last one I got from you was your last one under your address. It said we'll all be like ported over to the new one. It didn't. It oh, didn't you, happen yet. You haven't gotten. No, I haven't I mean, gotten the uh, new one. Many people who uh, I expected most everyone to to have, hmm. and I know some at least some people have. Uh, I will look into that. What I did was I exported all the email addresses that that you know I collected through my newsletter, and, uh-huh. and now uh, every Friday I, I I do one at at prospect.org. You can certainly sign up at prospect.org slash newsletter. So people can go to prospect.org newsletter, not only to get your on-tap newsletter, but others that the American Prospect puts out through right. the week it's as well. Right, it's a daily newsletter that, that has links to everything that we did that day and also some extra content. Awesome. And I see you're, you're um, <laughs> just about a month away from the 30th anniversary of the Prospect. You're having a big celebration in D.C.? That's right. Um, we ha- have been around for 30 years. Oh. Uh, that's uh, it's an interesting time for me to take over. Uh, we're we're doing a gala uh, in October with uh, Sherrod Brown and Katie Porter. Nice. Uh, and we're we're you know really excited about that. Um, it's it's an interesting time because uh, pretty much all of the 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 major roles of the prospect have turned over. Hmm. Uh, we have a new publisher. We have a new executive editor, which is me. We have a new managing editor, a new associate editor, a uh, new staff writer, and two new writing fellows. Uh, so despite the, uh, the, the continuity of 30 years, uh, we also have a lot of change, and we're bringing the prospect really into a new era. And so what this gala is celebrating is not just the past, but the future. And, uh, and, and, and that's where we're at in, in our, 
as we move on into our fourth decade. Wow. Well, the, congratulations, David. I mean, we've been, I've been reading your stuff for well over a decade now and talking to you about your stories, and you're, you've always been one of the most prolific journalists out there. Uh, now, you, you know, I, I love that you're at the helm of the American Prospect. It's, you're doing great work. Thank you so much for jumping in today and for this wonderful roadmap for a new president to get started on. We have something to aspire to here. All right. Thanks a lot. And that brings us to the end of another edition of The Bradcast. As I mentioned earlier, Brad and Desi are off dealing with family issues. Brad's father suffered a pretty massive stroke a couple of weeks ago. And just the other day, he passed away. So Brad and Desi are doing the family thing. We've got things under control for them here until they can get back. I thank you for bearing with me. Should you want to um, reach out with constructive criticism, feedback, questions, a guest suggestion, you can always reach me at Nicole at NicoleSandler.com. You can find me on Twitter at Nicole Sandler. And if you're enjoying the work I'm doing for Brad, I hope you'll check out my show. You can always get the podcast at NicoleSandler.com. I'll be back again tomorrow for another edition of The Bradcast. Until then, as Brad always says, good luck, world. <laughs>